Yeah, the way we do it at the museum is we, we brief the plan and we fly the brief and we don't improvise. It, it says on the board in real big letters that never gets erased. No improvising. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. Here we are at episode six of Flying BC. Thanks for all your feedback and messages so far. Keep them coming and let me know if there's a topic you'd like me to cover or a person you think I should interview. You can find me on Instagram at Flying British Columbia or through the website flyingbc.com. This week, I'm really happy to bring you a chat I had with Steve Thorne, perhaps better known as Flight Chops on YouTube. As I was working my way through my pilot training, the Flight Chops videos were a big motivator, and I've been lucky enough to do some filming with him for the show over the years. We did an epic float plane experience in Alaska, which we talk a bit about in this interview. Those episodes are starting to hit YouTube now, so be sure to check them out. And his huge back catalog of videos will keep you busy for a long time. Among other things in this episode, we talk about the origin story of flight chops, why video is so useful for debriefing, his emphasis on pre-takeoff briefings, and the challenge of making the show. Thanks for joining me, Mr. Flight Chops. Yeah, man, no problem. <laughs> um, as we tend to do with these things, I just wanted to get you to start off with your story in the aviation. I think a lot of people who follow you will probably know this story already. But, um, yeah, just give us a brief rundown on how you got into aviation. Yeah, so, I mean, being a pilot is something I always knew that I wanted to do. There was no question, you know, ever since I was a tiny little kid. The challenge, though, was I didn't have a family member beyond knowing my grandfather flew Spitfires in World War II. That was always something I knew about. I didn't really get to know him very well. There was a strange dynamic with my dad's relationship with him, and it wasn't until I was older that I even got to meet him. And when I say older, I mean like 9 or 10. But then he died shortly after that, so I never really got any good stories or any good insights about actually being a pilot from my grandfather. And uh, going forward, I just had to do it all myself. So I started trying to be an air cadet in Canada. They will fund uh, a scholarship for sort of the top 3% or whatever of the air cadets. And I tried so hard to be that very briefly, but my parents weren't super supportive. So we missed a couple, you know, parade, whatever, rehearsals, whatever you want to call it, the <laughs> marching. Anyway, it, so that took me out of loop immediately to even qualify because you can't miss anything. But I'm not a military guy, and I kind of knew quickly that polishing boots and marching wasn't for me. And I don't, you know, no disrespect for the military, it just definitely is not for me. And it's not to say Air Cadets isn't a good thing. Air Cadets was a great thing for watching how kids learn structure, and there was so much great education there. Uh, I just couldn't do it in a consistent way that would work for me to be in the scholarship thing, and I really just wanted to learn how to fly. But I did the math on how much time I would have to spend there and basically decided I could just get a part-time job and save the money. So at that time, is the mid-90s, it would have been 3000 or 4000 bucks to get the full PPL done. So that's what I did. I got a part-time job when I was 15 or whatever, saved the money. The problem is I then turned 16 and there were girls in cars. So I bought a 1985 Volkswagen Scirocco, 
with that nice. money. <laughs> and, you know, my love affair with uh, sports coupes began. And that's, <laughs> I've always driven manual transmission sports coupes ever since. So I guess something positive came of that. All that to say, my aviation dream kept getting put on hold. It wasn't really until between first and second year university when I was 21. I had a bit of money, I had the time, and I had that student mindset. So I just really attacked it. I did soaring that summer between, so that was 94, 95 summer. And then uh, in the winter, did the, uh, the power. So um, just transitioned over. So I got my solo done in the glider, didn't finish the license, just moved straight into power in this fall, winter, and got the uh, PPL done in the winter of 96. So it was kind of hardcore attacking it, 95, 96, to get started after, you know, my whole life of wanting to. Yeah. That was probably way nice. longer than you wanted. That's right. I'll edit it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so let's um, fast forward a little bit and give us the origin story of Flight Chops. So the origin of Flight Chops basically is, you know, having gotten my license while I was a poor college student, um, I raced through it. I had to do it in minimums because I really didn't have the money. So I put myself under a great deal of pressure during training to always kill it from the perspective of the instructor. That didn't mean I felt like I was killing it. I was almost always stressed out and behind the curve and feeling like really pushing myself harder than I, it was not enjoyable. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I did get everything done in minimums, but I have this distinct memory the day of getting my flight test done, going to the diner that I would drive to on the way home from all my training. And because of the way the flight test went, I had it booked for a morning because I knew I'd be nervous and I wouldn't be able to eat much. So I just had like minimal breakfast, went in, it was way too windy. But the examiner was cool and he sort of said, well, you know, let's just hang around. I got some stuff I can do and it seems like it should die down, you know, later. So what that meant was I had to sit there for hours waiting for the wind to die down, still not being able to eat. You know, I, I think I had a bowl of soup at the diner and, and just tried to make it through. Ultimately, I did the flight test, you know, in a hypoglycemic sort of state, <laughs> just barely making it through. So, so like pushing myself and sitting there at this diner and I ordered my burger, they slid it over the table and, and I just remember like looking at my temporary permit and it's like, I can't even eat this burger, it's just too much food right now, it's just my body is in this like overly, I'm coming down from this adrenaline stress and I had this big moment of what now, where I asked myself like, I just achieved this goal, didn't really enjoy the process, I have it, now what do I do? Fast forward to you know, maintaining currency for years through college and, you know, starting my career, almost always being broke, barely maintaining currency, like a couple months went by where I logged my point six. Like, I think I had to log a point five every 30 days for rental. So literally I would go treat that as a bill and just get it done. So I didn't uh, do very well with maintaining. I mean, I maintained minimal currency. How safe was I five years later? Probably not very. And, uh, then the whole housewife kid thing all happened in 2008-ish. And I just, at that point, that bill became a thing I just couldn't maintain and I dropped it. And then once you miss one month, the bill is going to be the same to get the instructor on board to get checked out for the insurance reasons. Two months, three months, four months go by. Then all of a sudden, it had literally been four years. Now I was sitting here in 2009 yeah, so I guess the house was 2005. So it was between 2005 and 2009, I did not fly. That All that stuff happened. The baby was born in 2009. And uh, life didn't end when I had a baby. I really thought that that would just be <laughs> such a hard thing. 
And my wife was like, she always saw me looking up and she's like, you got to go get recurrent. Just go do it. I know you want to. And around that time, what had happened was iPads and GoPros had both come out in that window of time when I wasn't current. And something I really did not like about flying was paper charts. Always sort of struggled with trying to manage folding it and highlighting what you needed for your route and like pre-marking it as much as you could. And just the idea of, I did as much pre-flight planning as I could, but it was always the idea of like having to do a long cross country, which I did do right after getting my license, two other buddies, we went to a, a 172 from Peterborough, Ontario, which is near Toronto and flew it to Florida in 96. And that with paper charts was hilarious. Like we had to go buy all the paper charts to get all that way. And then trying to do the flight planning was just silly and unfolding charts in the plane. And we did our best to do what you do in flight school, where you draw lines and so on and such forth. But at the end of the day, our routes would always change because where we were going, the weather would be different. And we just had to do what you do now. And what everyone does is you just change where you're going and you plan it out as best you can. You brief it as best you can. You get the wet notams and weather and everything else. But to do that with paper was just so prohibitively difficult. And that's just talking about VFR. You trying to do IFR in Canada, we have the cap gen, which is this massive thick, like three inch thick book with all the approach plates and everything. If you're going to do a big trip, just trying to manage paper crazy. So with the iPad, I was like, wow, this changes everything. I knew immediately what that meant and how great that was going to be. That combined with, with being able to debrief myself with GoPros, which I used immediately when I was getting recurrent to try to go through the process of getting recurrent efficiently to look back at my footage, fix landings and so on. You know, initially it was just recurrency in a 172. Shared it with some friends and saw like, like these little tiny set it and forget it cameras are so great. You know, you can get so much information from this little thing, it'll roll for the whole flight. I mean, that was such a different thing than coming from flying in the 90s where you might get a little snapshot of something your friend shot with a giant camera. But I never <laughs> had any good, yeah. I never had any good documentation to really show my flying. So just being able to sit back and watch and debrief and see yourself on the controls and see where you're holding too tight or where you're looking or, you know, so much value came from that. So sharing it with some friends, seeing the value in it. Uh, my original plan was just to share it as like POV stuff, not make it anything about me at all. But a buddy of mine who's a film director, because I went to film school, of course, that's all my friends, my career was in film said to me, you know, if you're going to do this, you can't, you got to put the you in YouTube is kind of what he said. And I mean, he wasn't wrong. That's the whole point of the whole thing. I had the Movember you know, in Canada. I don't know. Is that a charity in the States as well? The whole grow. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you grow a mustache as goofy as you can. At least most people try to make as goofy a mustache as possible through November. And that year I had done that and I just had left it into the winter because it was funny. And it got really silly with the chops. So a bunch of us guys go out each winter for a steak dinner and we were jamming on what we were doing. And that was in January and kind of came up with the idea for the brand and thought it through the winter and looked at other YouTube channels and what was going on in aviation. And part of what inspired me was there was so much stuff out there at that point being published with no context. So I felt like, you know, there's a gap here. I'm not going to be an instructor. I'm not going to tell people how to do anything, but I can show them what I'm learning and let them kind of learn along with me. One of the early videos that I saw that inspired me to fix the problem or at least address the problem was somebody doing stalls in a 172, just such a simple thing, clearly demonstrating how to do stall recoveries in a 172 using a ton of aileron. And I was like, okay, I'm not an instructor, but I know that's wrong. And this is being delivered 
with no context, or, or I guess the, the context that is there, is implying that this is instructional. And it's wrong, and I know it's wrong. So I was like, okay, so what if, if I made that video, I would, you know, do it, and then get my instructor or something like that to review it with me and say, look what you did wrong there. You can't be using ailerons when you're recovering. And I was like, that is a video that I could make offering value without being, you know, righteous or trying to tell anybody how to do it or something. It's just like I can offer these insights. That was really all of it. That was the birth of it is was so by, uh, well, I launched it in 2013, the summer of 2013. So it was that dinner that, that winter, thinking through the concept of what it would be, did the research over a couple months, watching what other channels were doing saw how horrifically the comment threads often went with everyone telling everyone who was wrong. So I was like, okay, so what I'm going to do is pre-troll myself, make stuff with context, kind of say what the haters will say in advance as much as I can. The joke was though, even still, I would put out a video called, you know, worst landing. Literally that's the title or something. There would still be guys in the comments that would say, oh my God, that was the worst landing. It's like, thanks, I mean, for That's reviewing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's still, even when you try to be explicit, there's still people that need to just say that you're wrong. But whatever, you know. So having said that, I think I still confidently get less than 5% that will do that. So largely, literally, actually, it's more like 2.5% because I think the, the channel average is 97.5% liked. So the tiny percentage of haters that will go to that length to call something out is, is far outweighed by the positive energy that it's created. And of course the whole thing, I mean, you got to be a part of one of the cool, like I still think the Alaska thing was one of the coolest missions we've ever done with the project. Ironically, it's also the longest I've ever sat on footage. It's now exceeding 18 months. How long ago was that? We did that. Yeah. About 18 or almost two years ago now. It was, it June. was June. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> 17 right no 18 june of 18. 18 yeah so now the reason why i'm sitting on that one is because it's such a big project that it was literally two terabytes of or more than two terabytes and look at yeah. the drives three of these drives, three drives yeah. up. so that amount of footage with that amount of flights it was float training bush back country i mean we did so much like long stuff. flights too like long flights, exploration flights in a beaver <laughs> missions yeah we, yeah we i mean i logged 11 hours left seat in the beaver yeah. you even got what almost an hour in it right i got six hours on floats yeah an hour <laughs> in the beaver and <laughs> yeah that was a good time yeah. so um that was exactly what flight shots became i did the only way i knew martin and tim who are the guys that ran that whole thing where they were fans of the channel they invited me out so i called you to say let's go film this crazy awesome thing i need someone that really knows what they're doing for film and I would love to have someone that's also a pilot because I could have brought Brock who's who I usually work with but I was like there's gonna be a lot of airtime. Brock doesn't love being on planes and he's not a pilot so I love his footage but oftentimes like like one of the classic moments was flying with the Coast Guard I had Brock and he did great shooting on that job but there was a point where in the first flight with the Coast Guard at Oshkosh, they took us out to do like a demonstration of a hoist recovery and we did it in like a farmer's cornfield. Just picked a location away from Osh where we could do it. So we're talking about all the nerdy stuff and I'm pointing at the instruments and the guys are talking and, and I look back and I see Brock getting this shot that I'm sure he thought was amazing and it probably, it, it was a beautiful shot, completely useless at the time in terms of context. He got this amazing shot of the corn like blowing in the wind of the rotors, right? And I'm like, thanks for that awesome B-roll. However, <laughs> at that moment, 
what I needed was the thing we were talking about. But he was like, I got to be honest, I was completely tuning out all what you guys were talking about it was so complicated and technical, I didn't understand. So I made note of that. I'm like, whenever I do an a, a, a aviation mission that's really specific, especially involved and detailed, I got to get a pilot to be the shooter. Well, there's probably three terabytes of footage from that trip because I was nerding out myself. So I'm like, I got to film that. I got to film that. Yeah, which was fine. <laughs> rolling on everything. You got those shots of the beautiful, I mean, in, in the case of Alaska, there were so many awesome opportunities to shoot beautiful stuff. You, oh, I, I literally was just going through that stuff today because I'm working on the project now. That footage is there, but you also got the close-up of the manifold pressure when we were talking about it. You know what I mean? So I don't have to go cheat. I can literally pull the shot in sync of, of us pointing at it, making sure we don't overboost it or whatever when we're setting, you know, takeoff power. So that that type of a project, you know, huge involved project was the type of thing that came from working with the community, which is what Flight Chops became. Um, so you came from a television and film editing background, and you actually worked on Ed's Up, didn't you, for a while? I the, did, yeah. Cana Canadians will know that show if you're an aviator in Canada. I knew Ed um, going back for a long time. When I was doing my night rating in 2001, which in Canada we do a separate rating for night, it's not a part of the PPL, he was doing his PPL at the same school. And I also knew him through some other friends that are like reptile fans, and we had just shot some reptile stuff that Ed was friends with these guys. It's just a weird multiple connections there so knowing him for a long time going back um it was cool to work with him on Ed's Up but what's interesting is I think we both had the same feeling about that one but he was really tied to it obviously core conceptually as the star but in the early days it was supposed to really focus on the aviation side going to different crazy places to do crazy jobs and that was sort of the concept but it, it really gravitated towards more like being dirty jobs with micro. Do you know that right. one from Discovery? Yeah. It was a yeah. Discovery. Um, the aviation side almost became sec. Well, it did become secondary actually. Ed was VFR only, and he had his instructor on the crew as as helping kind of ferry the plane and so on and be there. Um, I remember a very distinct moment where we were having a meeting. We were in one location, had to get to the next location, the next day. Weather was like a deal breaker. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to have to fly commercial. Um, you know, Vince, uh, the instructor, will have to ferry the plane. Steve, you fly with him, sit left seat. You can shoot Ed's, you know, um, POV of the instruments and kind of cheat it. And I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> Isn't this the show, like, Ed struggling as a VFR pilot to get places and sometimes you can't go? And Ed looked at me like, uh-huh. <laughs> and but the other producers were like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> plane tickets are booked we're going commercial we'll see you there i mean yeah. I, I, I was on board as like a shooter for that so i the reality like, the reality of reality television yeah so yeah. that was part of in the back of my mind like the inspiration of like i want to make real flying content that's real and really share the realness and not be stuck making the <laughs> when the content becomes second like right it's so weird like the concept of the show was supposed to be about aviation and then just then yeah the nature of tv took over i was like i want to do a thing that allows me to do what it is and it just is what it is and that's fine and if it's a targeting niche audience then so be it um that answered a bunch of my questions <laughs> <laughs> are you still using video to review your flights or are you kind of at the point where they're so busy that it's more about filming and flying well I mean what's interesting is the short answer is not um, primarily 
but because my editing ultimately results in a debrief, I'm looking at raw flights when I log them for the edit. Uh, I sync everything and then watch it in real time pretty much with like six cameras in sync at least. So I'm not watching six hours one at a time. But I do and I go through and watch them and mark them and mark the timelines with, with good moments or whatever I want to share. So yeah, I'm still getting a fairly good debrief out of it when I'm editing. Um, obviously, it's no longer primarily the purpose, if that makes any sense. Uh, I am careful to say, though, if I'm PIC, which is rare at this point because of the nature of what, what I'm doing is almost always training or some kind of checkout or something like that. So it can be an extensive film shoot where I'm essentially a producer first and a pilot second. If I'm PIC, um, the point of the flight is not the, sh the shooting, right? It, it's a real flight and I'm actually bringing cameras for debrief. Uh, an example of that would be a, a flight I did in the Harvard that was just meant to be a currency flight and I brought the cameras for exactly the debrief reasons and I did diagnose uh, a problem that some of the experienced guys who had been flying it missed. It was very subtle, but the engine instruments weren't quite, well, it wasn't quite getting up to temperature. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, I was like, yeah. Anyway, I cut it short. I, I, I was planning on doing a bunch of circuits and some county work and I just stuck in the circuit, did like four circuits, I think, and then I just called it. I was like, I don't think it got to the right, like I don't remember what it usually gets to in the high level, but it, it was like barely in the green the whole time, even like takeoff power, and it wasn't a cold day. So. Well, it's like gauge, gauges in general, like they're, they're relative, right? Like yeah, so every gauge reads different, but if it's relatively not the same as it usually is, then that's something, right. Yeah. Um, the lesson there, I was still new in the airplane at the time, but the lesson there is, you know, you should probably know where you expect it to get. But the point is I knew it wasn't getting where I thought it should get. So I shut it down. I cut the flight short, brought the footage to, you know, Dave, who, who's more experienced with the airplane. And he was like, yeah, that's not right. Okay. It turned out it was the vernotherm. Actually, the, it's a regulator thing that, that tells the oil when to go to the oil cooler or not was stuck open, I think, or something like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't working. So the, the part did need to be replaced. It was a problem. And my debrief did diagnose that. And I shared that. I made a video out of that learning moment where I'm essentially, I am PIC, but I later made a film about that, having no idea that I was making that film at the time. Yeah. So any of the planned out shoots um, where it's clearly I'm showing up as a producer, we have a plan, we know we're going to check out a beaver or whatever it is we're doing. I'm not PIC, so I can really be, you know, I'll do my best as you can tell. I really try to be present with the film secondary once I'm roll, once we're flying. And if, if there's a technical problem with the camera, I just like, eh, can't worry about it. It's too late. We're, we're flying. But it's a different deal where I, I do have my head in the filmmaking game more than if I'm PIC. I truly do try to live by the idea of set it and forget it with the cameras is part of my pre-flight. And then if they roll, they roll. If they don't, they don't. Whatever. At the end, I just take them all down. And if some red lights aren't on, it's like, oh, well, I don't know. That one stopped at some point. don't know why. Yeah. Um, so I try to tell people, really, you know, it's a great tool. But if you're going to use it as a selfie machine, then you know, you're not really using it right. And just please don't be distracted by it. I, it hasn't really happened yet. It's kind of amazes me to be honest, where I think there was one a couple of years ago that a contributing factor to an accident was considered to be the fact that these guys were thinking about Instagram more than they were about flying. That was actually in the, in this NTSB report. Um, but largely this has not been a direct contributing factor to any major problems yet. And I'm glad of it. 
but I do hold my breath for when is that moment where someone will have captured their demise very detailed on their multiple yeah. GoPros. So that's that's probably a good tip for using video for debrief. Do you have any other tips for using it? How to set it up or? Um, well, I mean, every airplane is different. In the older days, the exposure was always a challenge. If you wanted the panel and the view, you could rarely get both. But now the cameras are so good, you kind of can. They, they have such good latitude that they almost will get a good enough. Like if you don't have too many cameras, you can probably get away with one mounted on the ceiling over the shoulder. That'll get you the view as well as the instruments. And it's such high res at 4K. If you want to punch in later to only see the panel to see like what was that instrument reading at that moment, you can probably get that information from a wide shot. So really an over-the-shoulder, like in a PA-28 or whatever, if you just put a sticky up there, I usually stick it right to the hard plastic just uh, beside or behind the light, you know? Because yeah. some of the airplanes have that soft vinyl on a lot of the ceiling, but they have the hard plastic in the middle. Yeah. That won't, that in Moonies, too, have a pretty good spot there. It doesn't vibrate all that much, and it gets you a good shot that's over-the-shoulder, view, instruments, plus controls, so you can see what you're doing and uh, patch into the intercom and then you've got yourself a good amount of information. One of the early flights that I, I remember gleaning from was the one with MJ, the fear of flying thing. But um, I, think, I don't know if it was the first flight I did with her or it was around that same time. I took someone else flying in the city, similar flight. And I remember at the time thinking ATC was kind of sort of snarky a little bit that day, weird. And then looking back at the footage, I was able to see that they had actually tried to get me three times, but the passenger was talking and I missed it. So it was the third time that they were snarky. And that's the first time <laughs> that I heard them in the plane. Right. Now I would not have known that unless I looked back at the footage and listened to it. And that debrief really showed me like, I need to be better with telling my pastors when I raise my finger, you got to stop talking. Um, I do have that system in place, but I think on that particular flight, I didn't really exploit it enough or whatever. And, I think I was confident that I was not hearing my own tail number, but I was missing it. So that was a thing that the debrief, you know, just from listening to the ATC on my GoPro really helped me realize like, oh, I need to do a better job with that, that briefing. So part of what you do, especially recent years where you're traveling so much and you're jumping from plane to plane to plane, um, do you feel that that's, you've become like a, a jack of all trades, master of none, or has it raised your game on the whole? Yeah, I would still describe myself as a jack of all trades. I don't think any, it's really hard to master anything. But having said that, I mean, my fundamentals um, overall have definitely improved in a lot of ways that are not quantifiable, you know, easily. But I mean, I guess a good example is on the Alaska trip. After you had left, I did a helicopter lesson with Tim. And he kind of said, okay, so usually it takes, you know, five to seven hours for people to be able to hover with all four controls, but let's give that a shot. I think it'll be fun to show how hard that is. And it's fun to watch that lesson. It's a real-time one-hour lesson that we filmed, and that one I have published already because it was such a little self-contained thing that was just me shooting a tiny bit of B-roll. Obviously, you weren't there. It kind of was almost like a little mini old-school flight shops episode. Um, but when he handed me the, the uh, cyclic, cyclic, for the first time it's funny to watch how all over the place it is right and he, he gave me all the controls one at a time but within the hour i did get to the point where i could hover with all four controls which he was like this isn't something that typically happens but it's not because i'm a genius or anything it's just because i think i do jump in and out of so many things that i have this very tight sort of short 
um, pathway between feedback and input or input and feedback. I, I know very quickly what I'm doing and what's, what's happening because I, I'm not stuck with one thing like a 172 where there's this much, you know, feedback from the controls and it does that much. And, uh, I don't have any of that to take for granted. So I think there is something to be said there for that. Does that makes so sense. Kind of, a fo- kind of a follow-up question is, um, I guess, yeah. How do you adapt to airplanes quickly? And, um, you're jumping in a situation where you might be there for a day and yeah. you're trying to get something out of that, that lesson or that, that flight. Um, how do you approach that? So I do my best to get homework. So I say, give me the POH, give me the procedures, give me the checklists, give me whatever you can in advance. And I don't always get to do that. Like for instance, with Tim's helicopter, I hadn't even touched the POH. So that, that was not a case where I was very well prepared. Having said that, we didn't at all talk about anything like procedures or, or V speeds or anything. It was purely like, let's go play with it. Let's talk about the control inputs. And that was a unique situation. But normally, I'm doing a checkout in an airplane where I am expected to fly the right approach speed and know what configuration it lands in and all that sort of stuff. So I'll do my best to get a hold of the POH and read it and kind of get a hold of the checklist, look for any gotchas. And then what I do is when I get there, if I can, and I usually do get the dry time opportunity because I have to rig it with cameras, I usually have a minute with the plane myself where I just sit there, look at everything, where is everything located, where are the switches, um, I also get a picture for the eye line of what, what's the attitude like on the ground. I try to memorize that. I try to make note of, especially when I'm jumping in at a warbirds or whatever, they have a very different looking sight picture than they do in cruise than they will on the ground. And you've got to know what the three-point attitude of a Harvard is or whatever. So I kind of memorize where is the horizon slicing through the cowling um, from my seat. So I get a pretty good idea. And I try real hard to remember that because once you're flying, it's gone, and you don't get that again until you're back on the ground, and of course, it doesn't help you much when you're trying to find the ground if you don't know what it looks like. So, uh, yeah, prepare, POH, checklists, and sight picture memorization as much as possible while sitting on the ground and then while taxiing. I try real hard to do those things, and then it usually goes reasonably well but there's so much going on there's so much new information being thrown at you that a lot of that will be gone <laughs> but at least if you sort of tried to do the homework you'll be more prepared and I, I know you're quite um on the couple shoots i've done i think one the the crew you're with they didn't de- they didn't brief very much in advance but then other flights we briefed a ton in advance so i think that sort of pre-briefing everybody on the same page is probably really important too yeah, I try real hard to standardize as much as I can because so many things are not going to be standard. So uh, briefing is important at any, for any flight. I'm also a stickler for a pre-takeoff briefing, especially if I'm in a plane with somebody that I don't know and I don't know the plane. I want to know that we have a plan you know, for an engine failure on takeoff or an abort takeoff or anything like that. I don't want there ever to be a moment of like, um, was that you or whatever? <laughs> like, right. No. Who's in charge? Yeah. That's, who's in charge? Yeah. What are we doing? And you know, some of the worst accidents have happened right after takeoff engine fails and it's something stupid. Like, you know, the valve is off and they just, they didn't do a run up. I mean, I don't know what happened in Hood river, but do you know about the crash in Hood river? That happened I, last I've year? heard about it. I don't know. I, so I don't know that. exactly. I don't want to comment on the facts, but I was meant to fly that airplane with that pilot that day. I, I got there. 
I, I was on my way there that morning when they crashed. It was the first flight of the day in that airplane. Um, took off, engine failed at like 300 feet, stalled spun. And this is the chief pilot of a museum who's got, you know, 10,000 plus hours. What the hell happened? Yeah. Um, the fuel valve was in the off position in the crash. Now, whether or not he tried to turn it off, to, you know, I don't know. Some, some of the initial assumptions were they didn't do a run-up. They just took off. They had fuel in the lines, and they, the engine quit because the valve was turned off. That very possibly could have been what happened. And I'm not saying it is what happened, but what I'm saying is if I was in that situation, um, I would want to say, let's have a pre-takeoff briefing. I don't know this airplane, but tell me everything that you're doing. Talk through it there's going to be an extra layer of redundancy that I'm probably going to not miss the fact that the fuel valve is off and not because I'm running the checklist, but because I'm asking him to talk through them. Mm -hmm. So there won't be an opportunity to skip something. Um, that's the goal anyways. And the same thing being, if we did the briefing of saying, if the engine quits after takeoff, we're going to push the nose down. You know, I have these briefings where it's like before such and such an altitude, we do not entertain the turn back. All we do is push the nose down. Then we talk about picking a landing site, possibly a cause check. But that's cause check is like third if you're that low. Because it even if you figure out the cause check to get it restarted, it may still take too long. But if you're not flying, none of that matters. So yeah, the pre-takeoff briefing is a pretty important one. Um, and yeah, the, the pre-flight briefing, if you're doing formation flying or whatever else, making sure everyone's on the same page. And uh, yeah, the way we do it at the museum is we, we brief the plan and we fly the brief and we don't improvise. It, it says on the board, real big letters that never gets erased, no improvising. So if it's a formation flight, that's the plan. We've already talked about it. If someone has a problem, they drop out. And if, you know, lead has a problem, the whole thing, either number two switches to lead or whatever we briefed, or we all break off and do our own flight home. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's all planned out. There's no room really for guessing. And that's something I think that makes your videos accessible and and good for the teaching elements is you're not shy to ask the stupid questions like no like I mean, you'll ask somebody why you, why are you switching that or whatever yeah. and i'll put that in usually because i feel like that's the thing that people want to see is yeah. like let's let's make it real and, th and there's no question that there's times when i'm rigging a camera while we're taxiing or while the jet like i fly with my buddy osama who flies a phenom 300 and I mean, he's a CEO kind of character. He's a type A, like he moves fast. He gets things done. I always lie to him about when I'm going to be there. And I, I, t I say, when do you need me there? He'll tell me the time and I'll, I'll get there early. Like I'll lie and I'll still, I'll get there ahead of when I said I was going to be there. He'll still take that time back from me essentially by saying, okay, cool. We're early. So let's like, no, no, no. I need the time, but there, there's been multiple times when I've been working with him where I'm still literally like rigging cameras and turning things on while he's like starting number two engine. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to capture everything. Um, but I still really try to slow it down enough that I'm not compromising the safety, but yeah, it's a real balance between filmmaking and being a pilot. Um, but if it, if it, if it's going to be one or the other, I always make sure that being present so that's why I would I would allow my setup to be slowed down if me watching him go through the procedures was something I wanted to see. I'll just be like, well, I didn't get that third camera set up, but I'm going to wait because I'm trying to pay attention to what he's doing. And then we're taxiing, then I'll set it up, you know. Right. Um, so it's been fun to watch not only your progression through the years, seven, seven years now, I guess, 
Um, uh, but your family has also been along for the ride. Um, at what point did you know that Flight Chops was uh, something that you should dedicate all your time to? And what, what did your family think of that move? So, I mean, the good news is the joke when I first met Jill, my wife, I, I, I was very self-deprecating very early in that relationship. And I essentially said to her, I need you to know I do not have my shit together. <laughs> so, as long as you know that. I mean, the joke was, I mean, she didn't understand what I did as a freelance filmmaker. You know, she was a teacher at a private school. She had a real job. She was fairly established there. And I was a freelance filmmaker bouncing between contracts. Sometimes there were big contracts that were TV shows. And sometimes there were little infomercial, embarrassing corporate work that I wouldn't want to actually talk about. But I mean, it was what it was. And I bounced between all these different things. And uh, Flight Chops was inspired by several different versions of work that I was not happy with. Heads Up was one. I really, really thought I was going to find that show... Uh, very rewarding and liberating to work on, but it turned out to be just disappointing because I felt like this doesn't matter. Like whatever it is, it ultimately is reality TV. Like that's, that's what the work became in the early two thousands. Unfortunately, uh, a couple things, like three or four things all happened at once to conspire against filmmakers in that period. There was a writer's and an actor's strike at the same time. Digital video was kind of born making it possible to throw an army of camera guys at a production and an army of editors to clean up the mess. It removed cinematography from the workflow pretty much as far as being an artist and lighting. Directors stopped really mattering. It was more about producers. Mm -hmm. And when that writer and actor strike happened at the same time, Mark Burnett, who you probably know who that is, he, he kind of, yeah. yeah, he was like, what can I do without actors or writers? And Survivor was born, which was the first major success story of a reality tv show that was whatever that was 2000 right or 2001 yeah i think so and the rest is history so that workflow became what was happening and i was doing a lot of that work more and more of that type of work and i remember at one point working on a renovation show and uh the producers had said to me there's this point where they have a fight and i need you to get the thing where the girl is mad at the guy for whatever and I'm going through this footage for hours trying to find all these angles these cameras and i'm like i cannot find this footage that they're talking about and uh, my wife walked in at one point and she was like, oh my God, you are actually watching paint dry. So I, was, <laughs> I was editing in my home studio and I was like, my God, she's right. And I ended up calling one of the camera guys and saying, can you just tell me when this thing happened? They told me that it, this fight happened or something. And he was like, yeah, that happened during lunch. None of us were rolling. So <laughs> right. I, like, I just spent three and a half hours or whatever it was looking for this footage that didn't happen. So that moment combined with Ed's up, I was like, I'm not happy with what I'm working on. And I just started making the flight chop stuff for essentially a vacation from the work I was frustrated by. Um, and I don't know that there was an official moment where I stopped taking other contracts. Again, I guess it was my wife asking me like, when was the last time you didn't do a flight chops thing? And I'm like, I guess it's at least six months or something. And that was probably in like 2015. And, and she was like, and what's the next thing you have booked that isn't flight chops? And I was like, yeah, no, I don't think I have anything booked actually. I've, I've just, I've not been saying no to my other clients, but I've sending, I've been sending them to my other friends. Like I need this thing edited. So I was still staying in the, in the world. So I wasn't just saying no to everything in case like I needed to take a contract, but I hadn't. So I have not done anything different since about 2015. Huh. That's a good run. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Um, COVID will, uh, 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, you're probably in their perfect position to wade your way through that for a while anyways. I'm in a good spot with sh- stuff that I've already shot. I could stop shooting right now for a year. I probably have more than two dozen episodes in the can. Wow. Now the question is what does sponsorship and crowdfunding look like in aviation in a year? Wow. I don't know. So far it doesn't look bad. I'm, I'm uh, Patreon is, is still my largest single pillar of support. I call them the majority shareholder. They provide more revenue than any single sponsor does, which is pretty cool. Uh, definitely took a hit there in March. Um, across the board, I think Patreon kind of sent out warnings saying expect a 30% drop because, you know, this is real and people are not going to, they're going to look at this bill that they have, which is pretty unnecessary and expect a 30% drop. I would say I've seen about an 8 to 10% drop. So I'm, I'm in a pretty good spot there. Even like a lot of supporters are sticking through and I've seen a lot of new ones come on board in February, March, which was pretty cool. Hmm. Um, so we've, we've seen your daughter grow up on the show too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And part of your initiative right now is kind of this group of people doing aviation at home. Yeah. Um, has she got bitten by the aviation bug? And so what's, what's she working on? What, what do you do in aviation at home with her? I'm not doing anything aviation at home with her more than, um, just trying to help her out with her homework and whenever I can, if I can tie it together with the way I learn or to be honest with you, man, she's so much of a better student than I ever was. <laughs> it's really more a case of keeping her inspired to think about what she finds hard. That was the episode I did. I just, in the aviation at home movement, I didn't really know what I could offer other than to talk about variety and the value of variety and the idea that you don't know what you don't know and trying to learn a little bit. Well, that's why I called the episode. This is a really random title, which I'm sure heard it on the algorithm, but I don't care. I called it learn a little bit about everything to get good at anything. Yeah. And that kind of applies to everything that I do as flight shops. And that's kind of what I try to, I don't want to push her in the direction of aviation. I want to let her do whatever she wants, but I want to be able to sort of say to her, try it like just you know the same with food whatever it's like try it it might seem weird but it it might add up to something bigger that you can later apply to something else so that's kind of been how i've applied it to her i think aviation in general like if you expose people to it the ones who take to it will take to it but so many kids and people don't get exposed to that opportunity Yeah, I mean, the joke that I used to say was there's no accidental pilots. Like, you're a pilot because it was in your blood and you wanted it really bad. That normally would have been applicable up until recently where that boom happened. And I think there was a case where a lot of kids got pushed in that direction because doctor, lawyer, pilot. It was just another job that the parents said, go do that. So I think we ran into this weird bunch of new students in the past, like, five years who actually don't have that core fundamental love of aviation and i think man you may need to cut this but (laughs) this this is like an opinion piece that comes from a lot of people you know the the crash that happened in san francisco what was that it was a triple seven or whatever it was it was a brand new sexy airbus or something right yeah Uh, boeing or airbus whatever it was you know the story they crashed into the seawall and blew in a million pfr day yeah so essentially what happened there without doing the NTSB report is, and and there was a training captain plus a full crew on board. 
they had the autopilot set in the wrong mode and the auto throttles were not engaged. Now, that's a mistake, cool, but they didn't notice it at all until the airplane had pitched to such a ridiculous, because the autopilot was trying, 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 trying to hold this, the approach profile, right? And it just couldn't at a certain point and it got slow and low. When they finally noticed it, they tried to add power and didn't, you know, it was way too late to get it fixed and they crashed into the seawall. And I mean, from where I'm standing, I'm not a jet pilot and everything else, but fundamentally as a student pilot or just as an aviator, you know, pitch equals performance and you're gonna notice this doesn't feel right. Yeah. But but they were all kind of just, you know, children of the magenta line or computer managers, like just thinking about their systems and in their minds, the modes were all set properly, even though it wasn't. And I don't know, there's a fundamental lack of aviating happened there, right? So choose to use that or don't use that. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a know-it-all, but the idea that being an aviator isn't something that you do by accident really used to apply. And uh, I don't know how much that applies currently because of the large influx of students that have come in to it as a career that's supposed to be a good money-making opportunity. And, and it was up until like two months ago, yeah. <laughs> like it was the biggest boom we've ever seen. I just did a video that's still sitting here, not edited that I don't know what I can use now with Dennis, my instructor at home, who basically was trying desperately to beg instructors not to leave because they were getting so many job opportunities. He was losing instructors so fast. He was basically saying like, look, I know you can go get that awesome job, but you're going to take longer to get into the left seat if you go sooner. And he, he, he made this case to say, spend longer as an instructor, get specialized, get some good experience. And then when you do move to the airlines later, you'll move to the left seat sooner and you'll make the, be the better money sooner. Like, I know it sounds weird, but just he tried to make, he, and he did, he made a good case. I don't think that applies right now. We're in such a bad spot with, with the amount of pilots that had just been furloughed. Uh, I don't even know if it's worth publishing that video anymore because two months ago, aviation was just rocking. You can put on a throwback Thursday. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know what, what to do. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, um, where, where do you see flight shops in, well, let, let's, what's coming down the pipe next coming up and then where do you see flight shops in five years? Five years is an eon right now, right? I mean, I, I, a little over five years ago, I started it. And if you told me five years ago, you're going to be a T6 pilot um, with like experience in 50 types. And, uh, you know, there's just no way I would have, that's just not even pot. Like what? From a YouTube channel? So I don't know where it'll be in five years. Um, but what's coming next is the beaver stuff and the Alaska stuff is, is right here in the pipeline right now. Um, also a fairly similar epic kind of shoot that we did in Winnipeg doing an extra 300. So I did the backseat checkout and the sportsman routine from the backseat, which is the pilot seat of the extra 300. My friend Dave, who is the one that checked me out in the T6, his dream was always to fly and solo an extra 300. So I brought him out with the plan to get him trained up to solo it. He didn't really focus on the aerobatics. He just focused on procedures and made sure he understood the airplane so he could solo it. He did basic aerobatics. Uh, and then we also combined that with the contest winner who we flew out from Portland 
who came out for the weekend to get to fly and hang out during a shoot. So there's kind of three stories woven together in that, you know, three day shoot, which is almost as epic as the Alaska stuff, but not quite. The Alaska stuff was in our level, but that's still about two terabytes of raw footage. It was like seven flights between the three of us and a whole bunch of briefings and everything else and uh, B-roll and stuff. So that's a multi-part series that's coming in post right now. And then I'm going to just get into the back catalog of my raw footage that has been piling up and get caught up on editing that stuff. And the minute that I'm allowed to fly again, I'm set up to do the multi-IFR in a DA-42 Diamond Twin Star uh, G1000. So that'll be a good... I've got the multi VFR only, and I've got the instrument six-pack single engine. Kind of going to merge those together and do the multi-IFR in a glass panel and share that training. So that's planned as a production shoot training sort of series. It was actually supposed to be happening this month, so that's just paused, but that's okay. I'll do the groundwork, and that's what I'm working on now, getting my sim set up for a G1000 and working on the POH and the procedures for the DA42. Awesome. And um, yeah, where can people find you? Flight Chops. You just Google Flight Chops. It'll get you to YouTube. And uh, there's a website that kind of manages kind of keeping it all together. And that's a place where you can find the whole back catalog in a fairly organized way. But, you know, fundamentally, the whole thing lives on YouTube. I use Twitter and Instagram. I exist on Facebook. Don't really use it that much. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the way to find it. Sweet. Well, thanks for joining me today. No problem, man. Awesome yeah, to have cool. you on. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get to film more stuff soon. Yeah, whenever they let us out of our basements. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to fly soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again to Steve for joining me on the show. The week we recorded this was a busy one, with everyone trying to launch live streams and Zoom chats and other online video formats. And Steve was in high demand, so I appreciate his time. Go check out Flight Chops on YouTube for the latest Alaska episodes we shot together. And he just posted a video about wearing helmets in the air. I've got an episode coming up that will continue that discussion, so stay tuned. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia. I hope life is starting to look a little more normal for all of you these days, and I look forward to meeting you at an airport or in the skies soon. Flying BC is a project of Formula Photographic.